Our sermon passage this morning is from John 6, 35 through 51. Verse 35, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you who have seen and yet do not believe, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, Is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. This is God's word. Every two years, Ligonier and Lifeway Research do a survey where they ask Americans to try to find out what they believe about Christianity. The 2020 results of that survey are going to come out in a couple of weeks, but there was one statistic that they released that was particularly concerning right off the bat. Nearly one-third of those who might be described as evangelicals believe that Jesus was a good teacher but not God. Now, confusion about who Jesus is will always be with us in the world until he returns, but it can't be with us in the church. To be clear, we haven't heard anybody who's denying the divinity of Jesus here, but since Jesus is central to everything that we do and who we are as a church, it seems fitting to come back to these fundamental principles of who Jesus is. Who is he, and what did he do? Here's our statement of faith and what it says about Jesus. We believe in the eternal Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, who took on human nature when the Holy Spirit overshadowed the Virgin Mary, causing her to conceive and to give birth to Jesus Christ, who uniquely was both fully God and fully man. Jesus is God. We're going to take seven weeks to think about the person and work of Jesus in a sermon series called the I Am Statements from Jesus from the Gospel of John. The central theme of John's Gospel is this, Jesus is the Messiah, he is the Son of God, and that he gives eternal life to everyone who believes in him. That's the the melody, if you will, that is playing in the background of every story, every part of this book. In fact, John Chapter 20, verses 30 to 31, make this very clear for us. It says this. 
Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these, that is what's written in John's gospel, are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So during this brief series, we're going to take a look at a few snapshots from the book. Seven times in John, Jesus says, I am something. The bread of life, the light of the world, the gate, the good shepherd, the way, the truth, and the life, the true vine, the resurrection and the life. And so we're going to take each of those in turn over the next few weeks. With the help of the Holy Spirit, we should grow in our understanding and appreciation of Jesus. Are you guys down with that? Does it sound like something you would be interested in? I hope so. Can we put up that title slide again one more time? Just the I am slide. We're going to start in John 6 this morning, and it's a passage that Logan just read for us where Jesus says that he is the bread of life. I am a big fan of bread, as it turns out. You probably don't notice this, but I used, it's not very clear, I apologize, but I used a really tight shot of sourdough bread as the background for the sermon series. It just added a little bit of color to it. Photoshop. Pastor Josh really wanted to preach this particular text, but the way that the schedule worked out, I get to do it. And he's on keto anyway, so it's just as well. Before we start, let's pray. Oh, Father, I am grateful to be able to open your word this morning with these who are gathered here in person and online. Father, we pray for ears to hear, eyes to see. We do want to see you uh, for who you are. We want to see Jesus for who he is and what he's done. Father, may we leave this morning nourished spiritually. May we feed upon Christ uh, through our faith in him. We love you. We need your help. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. The big idea this morning, Jesus is the bread from heaven who assures everlasting life. Jesus is the bread from heaven who assures everlasting life. Quick side note, I labored hard in this text this week. There's a lot here, and I believe that the Lord has met me in it. I have been very encouraged by this text this week. I hope the the same is true for you. This passage is halfway through chapter 6. And in the first half, Jesus performs this miraculous sign where he feeds a huge crowd with a few loaves, a couple fish. Later that night, his disciples cross the Sea of Galilee in a boat, but Jesus doesn't cross with them. He withdraws to be by himself there for a little while. He caught up with them, though, about three or four miles into their trip by walking on water and joining them on their boat. The next day, the crowd that was fed wakes up and they see that Jesus is not there and they figured that he crossed the sea and so they get into boats as well and they're going across the Sea of Galilee to to find him. They are seeking Jesus, verse 24 tells us. But Jesus knows that they're chasing him for what he can provide for them. They're hungry again and they want Jesus because they want more bread. Verse 27, Jesus tells them, do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life. 
I just want to spend some time in this first verse, verse 35. I want to see that only belief in Jesus satisfies our spiritual appetite. So the Jews that Jesus is talking with ask him what kind of sign he's going to do. Because they want to believe in you. Okay, we want to have faith in you as this prophet. And they seem to be referring back to Moses and how he was a prophet and the way that he provided manna from Israel. Now, of course, manna was that miraculous provision of bread that sustained the Israelites when they were wandering in the wilderness after they had been redeemed out of Egypt. It would fall from the sky, it would fall from heaven, bread from heaven, and it would land on the ground. And it kept the Israelites alive as they wandered around out there in the wilderness. In verse 32, Jesus then says to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. So they're like, all right, great. Bread that's better than the manna? Bread that's better than the stuff you gave us even yesterday? Keep giving us that bread. This is the bread that we want. And that's where our text begins in verse 35. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. I understand this to mean based on the context that I've just laid out, that Jesus is identifying himself as the only one who can give eternally satisfying spiritual nourishment. When Jesus says, I am, we'll be hearing more about this throughout the sermon series, but the the structure in the original language is unique. Now, I promise I will not talk about Greek very much, but this phrase is an important one, ego eimi, If we translate it directly into English from the Greek, it would sound redundant. It would sound something like, I, I myself, am the bread of life. And it's reminiscent a little bit of Exodus 3.14, where Moses is dealing with Yahweh. God reveals his name to Moses as I am. It's also similar to a few passages in Isaiah where the Lord is declaring himself to be the one true living God. And the Greek translation of those passages from Isaiah chapters 40 to 55 would have translated into Greek as ego eimi. So this phrasing, which comes up 24 times in John's gospel, is a clear reference to Jesus' eternal existence and his divinity. But here in, in particular, in our passage, Jesus says that he is, I am, the bread of life. Bread baking is really in right now. Have you guys noticed that trend? I see some nods. During the early days of COVID-19, it was really hard to find flour and yeast. A lot of folks were taking up the art and the science of homemade bread making. King Arthur Flour is a manufacturer of flour, and they reported that their sales went up 600% as people began stocking up on grocery goods. King Arthur Flour has a hotline that people can call if they need tips, if they just need help making their bread. And they were surprised to find out that during the quarantine, a lot of their calls turned into counseling sessions. During that time when people were bored and anxious, they were looking for comfort. And some of them were looking for it in a freshly baked, heavily buttered, heavenly smelling, homemade loaf of bread. And one of the people who answered calls for King Arthur said this, quote, 
I think people just need someone to be like, no, no, the bread will be fine. Just let it rise for another half hour. It'll be okay. It's interesting to see the connection between spiritual angst and bread, even in our own day. Let me ask you, do you recognize when you become spiritually hungry, when your soul is grumbling, how do you respond? What does that look like for you when you're searching for meaning or for purpose in your life? You know, bread can seem like such a common thing, and it is for us, but it is a necessary thing. You know, Jesus instructed us to pray for our daily bread. You know, bread gives us strength. It gives us nourishment. Bread gives us life. Jesus is to the soul what bread is to the body. It's food. It seems like a good question to ask, and I do apologize if this is too personal, but it is worth considering. During quarantine, did your bread consumption go up? How about your scripture consumption? Did that go up during quarantine? That question is too close to comfort for me. I do love me some bread, but I'm encouraged by this passage to remember that Jesus knows and understands and has compassion upon our weariness. He knows that, yes, we do need bread to sustain our lives, but it won't lead to the life that we need. He didn't come just to give us bread, but to be our bread. Let this be an encouragement to you to look to the word when you're weak. Look to the word when you need sustenance for your soul. Perhaps you're even feeling weary right now. You're thinking, man, if it was up to me and my own spiritual appetite, I would be in huge trouble. Well, look at this next section with me, verses 36 to 40, and I'm going to include verse 44 in this passage, this portion as well. I want to read that again. I believe what we find here is that God assures salvation. God assures salvation. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. 44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Left to ourselves, being dead in sin, we too would see Jesus and yet not believe. Verse 36, so why doesn't the crowd believe? Is it, is it a, what is the issue here? I think it's a problem of desire. They don't want what they ought to want, namely Jesus himself. The crowd has been exposed to Jesus. They've heard his teaching. They've seen his miracles. But they hadn't come to him and believed in him. Why not? When I'm hungry, I can smell a loaf of French bread from like a mile away. I can chase it down. I will follow my nose. If these people, just like you and I, have a hunger in their soul, 
why can't they smell that freshly baked loaf of Jesus standing right in front of them? Why don't they come to Jesus? Why doesn't the crowd believe? Has he done something that is insufficient? Like, does Jesus need to try harder with his miracles? Does he need to be more clear in his teaching? This passage here gives us great hope. It deals with election and predestination, which is a topic that can invite a lot of confusion and uncomfortable emotions. I understand. But let's think about this particular text together for a few minutes and see if you're not encouraged by the lavish mercy and grace of God. This passage seems to indicate that faith is not first a human choice to be made, but it is the result of the Father drawing people to Jesus. Verse 44 says that no one can, that is, they are not able to come to Jesus unless the Father draws him. And coming to Jesus, in verse 35, if you've got your John 6 in front of you, and I hope you do, coming is synonymous with believing in him. You can see them used there in parallel together in verse 35. The word behind draws there in verse 44 is used nine times in the New Testament. It's used to describe Peter when he is drawing his sword in John 18. It's used in John 21 when they're hauling in fishing nets, when people seized Paul out of prison. They dragged him out of the prison in Acts 21. James 2 uses it to speak of being dragged into court. So notice that there does seem to be some initiative in bringing people to believe in Jesus that begins with God. It's the concept of regeneration, being born again. In John 3, Jesus explains to Nicodemus that he must be born again from above. And he says, that which is born of flesh is flesh, that which is born of the spirit is spirit. We see this idea too elsewhere. 1 Peter 1, 3 says, according to God the Father's great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. One must be made alive, enabled to repent, having their will freed by God to come to Christ in faith. What is needed to believe in Jesus is nothing less than a rebirth. Come back to verse 37 with me. It appears to me to say that God has chosen the people and has given these people to Christ. And these people must and will come to Christ and will be saved. It also says that everyone who comes to Christ will be saved and will not be cast out. So following regeneration, following rebirth, a person has the power, they have the capacity to know and to enjoy and to exercise faith in Jesus. Faith is a firm and certain knowledge of the mercy that God has shown to us in Christ. And as the person comes to Jesus, comes to him in faith, conversion occurs in his or her turning to Christ in repentance and in faith for salvation on the day of judgment to be raised up on the last day as we see here in this text in verse 39. That God has chosen a people and given them to Christ and 
everyone who comes to Christ will be saved. These two facts are not in contradiction to one another. God is sovereign, humans are responsible. If we begin with God and recognize the many verses that say that the initiative and salvation belongs to him as our creator, there is room for the many verses that treat humans as rational, responsible, moral beings, not robots. I don't understand this to be a violent drawing as if being compelled by some external force. I understand it to be a a powerful impulse of the Holy Spirit, which enables men to be willing to come to Jesus. There's no coercion on the part of God. Now, there are, of course, differing views on this passage and the doctrines, as I've laid them out here, and there is room for some disagreement. I have presented what I believe to be faithful to the text, to the context, what is consistent with other scripture, and what is very widely accepted as uh, an orthodox position within church history. Now let me just dig into why that's good news. If the human will was sovereign over God, it would be able to frustrate and stop God's life-giving grace. Jesus, in this idea, Jesus has accomplished, he has acquired everything that we need and is required for salvation, but when he wants to apply it, his power and his love would be frustrated, that would bounce off of the human will. But what we find here, what we find elsewhere in scripture is that God's counsel will always stand and his grace will not ultimately be thwarted. Christ is a perfect savior and if anyone is going to have eternal life, a divine rescue is needed. Unbelief doesn't rule, God rules. God, that is God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, assure salvation. Now, because God assures salvation, we should have unshakable hope for our own assurance of salvation. Do you see this connection? All those who come to me will never be cast out. Jesus came to do his Father's will, which is that none who come to Jesus in faith will be lost, and he or she will be raised up on the final day. The Father gives people to the Son and draws them to him, and they come to the Son who gives them eternal life, keeps them, and will resurrect them from the dead. What more assurance could you possibly hope for than to know that all three persons of the Trinity are working together for the salvation of those who come to Jesus Christ in faith? This should give us great comfort. This should give us great refreshment. This should give us great assurance and great encouragement. Commentator D.A. Carson notes on this passage, quote, the context demands that Jesus is repudiating any idea that the Father has sent the Son forth on a mission which could fail because of the unbelief of the people. And if we keep reading in verses 41 through 47, I think we see this idea fleshed out further. So let's look there at Jesus and the new and better covenant. Verses 41 through 47, Jesus and the new and better covenant. 
I'll read those passages for us, these verses. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is this not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to the Father, come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Verse 45, it is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me, not that anyone has seen the Father, except he who is from God, he has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. This, this whole passage, really John 6 in, in general, is a huge study in how to understand how the Old Testament relates to the New Testament. It is, particularly just our passage this morning, is absolutely filled with references to the Old Testament and to Israel's history. John 6, 4, which is at the beginning of our, our chapter this morning, says this, Now the Passover, which is the feast of the Jews, was at hand. So the, the Passover was an annual festival that was instituted by God for Israel. It was meant to ensure that his people would always remember that night of redemption when God saved them out of Egypt. If you recall what happened there every year, what they would do is kill and eat a Passover lamb, and it would remind them of that time when they had killed a lamb and dabbed its blood on the doorposts, which protected that house from the angel of death. So the lamb lost its life, it was sacrificed, so that the house could continue to have life within it. And look at verse 41. So the Jews grumbled about him. It's repeated again in verse 43. That word grumbled might not seem like it's important, but it is an important word. They refused to trust God in the wilderness. After they were brought up out of Egypt, Israel, quote-unquote, grumbled. It's the same word. They grumbled against Moses and against God. They refused to trust God for their rescue. In Exodus 16, just before God first provided manna for them in Israel, that, that bread from heaven that we talked about earlier, Israel was grumbling against God. So in the morning, when they woke up in, in Exodus and they saw the manna for the first time on the ground, they said, what is it? And now God has brought them the true bread from heaven, Jesus. He's before them, and still they, they grumble. Here, they're grumbling because Jesus says that he came down from heaven. And they're like, what is he talking about? He came down from heaven. He came down from Mary and Joseph. We know his parents. He was with God, and he was God, John tells us in the very beginning of his gospel. This is a, a reference to the fact that he has existed eternally before he was born. And they they don't fully understand who Jesus is. That bread of life is right there in front of them. And yet, here again, they're saying, what is it? With all these similarities to the Old Testament, we might get the feeling that it's all just a little bit of history repeating itself. Great. I've heard this story before, and I know how it ends. God provides rescue for Israel. He brings them out to their own promised land. He gives them his law. He they, he. He makes a covenant with them. They promise to keep his law and be faithful to the covenant. They don't. They get kicked out of the land, and it ends in tragedy. I know how this story ends. 
But in contrast to all the similarities that we see here with the Old Testament passages and stuff, we get another reference that shows what's happening here is going to be different than what happened there. Verse 45 says this, quote, It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. This is a reference to Isaiah 54, verse 13. Isaiah 54, 13 says, All your children shall be taught by the Lord. That verse in particular is part of a big, beautiful passage in Isaiah, which is referencing a new covenant where God has promised to assure the restoration and the renewal of his people. So this is a reference to the new covenant that Jesus is making here by talking about Isaiah. And it sounds a lot, it's not just in Isaiah. These same ideas are throughout the prophets. You know, Jesus said the prophets say this. This promise is in other prophets too. Jeremiah 31, 34 says, quote, And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. This is the same idea of being taught by God. Even Deuteronomy 30, verse 6, God himself promises to circumcise the hearts of Israel one day. Ezekiel 36, 26 through 27, speaks of the same new covenant as an Old Testament prophet. Those verses say this, and I will give you a new heart, a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and to be careful to obey my rules. Now, all these references there from the Old Testament are talking about what God's going to do in this new covenant, and it's going to be different from this painful history that we're so familiar with, with Israel. The prophets promised a day when God's people's stubborn hearts would be removed, they would be given new hearts with new desires, God would step in and stop the cycle of rebellion by his own sovereign will and action. He's not going to let his plans and purposes of a holy people be thwarted by the weaknesses and inability of the human will. He promises to do what needs to be done to make his people who he desires and intends for them to be. Israel's history was filled with covenant breaking. But in the new covenant, God assures that it won't be. God will finish what he started. Just as Jesus told the crowd in, uh, in one of the verses earlier, you can't work your way to God. History is filled with people trying to work their way to God. Man-made religions are filled. That's what they are, is men trying to work their way toward God. Jesus says in verse 29, though, he says this, the work of God is that you believe in me. Even that is a work of God. It is a precious, undeserved, merciful gift. Do you feel how humbling that is? For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. I believe this is what the Protestant reformers meant when they said that we are saved by grace alone, 
through faith alone and Christ alone to the glory of God alone. Soli Deo Gloria. I hope you find this as humbling and exhilarating and thrilling as I do. Nothing in my hands I bring simply to the cross I cling. When we evangelize, when we spread the gospel, we recognize that we are, we're just beggars showing other beggars where to find bread. Jesus is the mediator of a new era in human history. It was connected with Israel's. It truly is the fulfillment of Israel's history. And as we keep reading in this last, pat, uh, last part of the, the passage, we see what the culmination of Jesus' mission will be. Point four, Jesus gives us life by giving his life. 48 to 51 say this, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Jesus is going to give his flesh as a substitutionary atonement. This is what we see here in this text. Jesus contrasts himself with the manna from the Old Testament. That bread, it was bread that came from heaven. And it was good because it kept Israel alive as they're wandering around out there in the middle of nowhere. Ultimately, though, that bread from heaven failed because it didn't lead ultimately to eternal life. They still died even though they ate that bread from heaven. Jesus says, though, that he is the bread that when one eats it, it will cause them to live forever. And he explains in verse 51 what that means. He's going to give his flesh in order to secure salvation. That Passover lamb that Israel would soon be sacrificing to remember how God had delivered them from their bondage and slavery would soon be the person of Jesus himself. He would be sacrificed to deliver his people from their bondage to sin and slavery. He's a new and better priest with a new and a better covenant and a new and a better sacrifice. One commentator, David Schrock, drives this point home, I believe, when he says this, quote, What the old covenant could not do, Christ does, securing the blessing of the Spirit for his covenant people by means of his atonement and intercession. End quote. So when you eat his flesh, which is what he literally says, and people get freaked out about that later, it's not in our sermon text this morning, we'll talk about it, What he means is to to come to him and believe in his sacrifice. And by doing so, you gain eternal life. Read Hebrews 8 through 10 if you want to know more about this after the service. And if you have questions, and I bet you do, I would be glad to talk to you about it as well. But for now, let's try to just tie this together. I've taken to watching a particular survival show where people go out on their own, they're left alone in the wilderness to to survive on their own. And as the months drag on, as they're out there, it's really interesting, it's actually moving to see how grateful they become for the food that they receive. They become more desperate and they become more thankful. It's really moving to see how grateful they are when they are able to catch like a fish or a rabbit or a musk ox. Such gratitude 
joy, uh, tears, screaming, crying, exhilaration, thankfulness, and humility because they recognize their own deep need for nourishment and they recognize that something has to die in order that they might have life. You and I can walk into a grocery store right now, we can cross the street and go to Fry's and be like, I got a couple bucks, I'm surrounded by bread, I'll give you the money, you give me the bread, it's a transaction. But picture being alone in the wilderness without any stores, like Israel was. Let that desperation, let that gratitude be our posture as we come to the bread of life. Jesus tells us, you who have no money, buy and eat. So Jesus is identifying himself as the only one who can give eternally satisfying spiritual nourishment. He is the bread that we need but don't desire. We don't believe that he's going to satisfy us. But our unbelief is not going to stop God's mercy and his grace. The Father, the Son, the Spirit will move together to give us the desire and the ability to want Jesus. And when we turn to him, he receives us. He will keep us forever. He will raise us up on the last day. He will give us eternal life. And he does this by offering himself as an atoning sacrifice to do away with our sin once and for all. Well, this passage isn't directly about communion. Uh, The elements of the table are not actually the flesh and blood of Jesus. We are not eating Jesus in any literal sense. There is no hocus pocus that happens when I pray before it, where it turns into the body and blood of Jesus. But this passage does, I think, have some strong references to what would be happening in Jesus' Last Supper. So we're going to take communion. Let me invite those who are willing to come down and distribute the elements of communion to do so now. Come on up. Communion is a a, a tangible reminder that Jesus is our life-giving bread from heaven. So as we partake of this bread, we're reminded that just as we need physical bread to sustain our lives, we need Christ to sustain our souls. So as we consume these elements physically, we're, I think, feeding on Christ spiritually in a sense. Let's remember that, that Jesus is the only food that can truly satisfy. And remember that he nourishes us by our faith. Our Savior Jesus Christ has ordained and instituted the ordinance of communion to spiritually nourish and to sustain those who have already been regenerated and grafted into his family, which is the church. So if you're a member here, obviously, of a like-minded gospel-preaching church in good standing, you are warmly invited to join us in celebrating the Lord's Supper. Just as we take and hold the bread and the juice, the wafer in our hands, and eat and drink, and we're sustained by it, we come to Christ by faith, who is our spiritual nourishment and growth. So as they distribute the elements... I encourage you to meditate on that.